0: Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a perceptive theme, recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. In this podcast, three featured storytellers are intermixed with a community story slam. Today's featured stories are from Lorene Quick, Bonnie Violet, and Paulina Lewengate. It's time to come to your senses, literally, but also metaphorically. The theme, touch, inspires the stories, so get ready for all the feels. It's story time, Hot Club Le Bois, ladies and gentlemen, Hot Club Le Bois. And with uh, some help from the Heirloom studio tonight, which is wonderful, thank you, dancers, good evening. I'm Jody Eichelberger, the artistic director of Story Story Night. It is a pleasure to have you with us here tonight for our continuing series making sense of it all tonight focused on touch. And actually to start things off right away, I thought it would be interesting to hear about touch from a dancer's perspective. Now this kind of dance, it's not like the dance the kids are doing today, right? Where you're like not touching each other at all. You're just kind of hopping around in your own space. These guys are actually touching each other. So please welcome to the stage the uh, owner of Heirloom Studios, Joel Hunter. Thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: You guys are awesome. I love the Moody Jews. Let's hear it up for the Moody Jews. Sorry, Hot Club LeBois. This amazing person right here, he has multiple interests, and I am sorry for mixing that. This is Hot Club Le Bois. Let's hear it up for Hot Club LeBois. Uh, also, uh, my amazing friends slash people who have learned from me. Let's hear it up for them who came out to support me. And I am so nervous. (laughs) I've never done anything like this ever in my life. Um, So I guess uh, we have to figure out how I got here, right? That's the plan. Also, I I am a dance instructor, so any interaction you could have with me makes me feel more comfortable. This is basically the culmination of every mini story I've ever given all of my students over here um, in one kind of, amalgamation if you will so I'm gonna treat you guys like uh like you're my students in a dance class does that sound cool oh I already feel better already (laughs) okay here we go so um my story as becoming a dancer is is rather uneventful but maybe it's just because I'm telling it so it kind of starts with uh my mom and as as often great stories do um my mother uh, she, she's the type of woman who was born Lutheran and decided to be LDS to be rebellious. <laughs> <laughs> and she would go to these things, uh, I think they're called steak dances, where you would dance as a pretty common thing. Around here in Idaho, they happen a lot, maybe not everywhere else. But she would always tell me about this, this one little smarmy dude who would like hunch over and he'd be like, Hey, you want to dance? And she was like, he was the best dancer I've ever had in my entire life. And she told tiny little Joel, which is my name, if you didn't get it, my name's Joel. And she would tell little bobble-headed Joel who was basically like a lollipop build. I was this huge bobblehead with huge dimples and this tiny little body. I mean if you like nudged me a little bit I'd fall right over. That was sort of the the look that you I, I see pictures of me as a ring bear, and that's it's just like oh no he's gonna fall over. So she told me she was like Joel you better learn to dance. I'm in kindergarten. I'm, I'm, I'm running away from girls trying to smooch me. This is this is the caliber of of where I was at as a kindergartner and so this was impressed by me multiple multiple times now to get a a perspective of the other half of my parentage uh my dad uh he was from uh probably like double redneck if that's a thing (laughs) You know, like, like, redneck on redneck, and then you get a synergy, and then you got, like, triple red. I don't know how it worked. But as you can imagine, there was a bit of a dichotomy in my life, like, whether I should play football or whether I should do anything else. And, uh, the only thing I could catch a football with was probably my bobblehead. Is about how good I was at sports. So, um... Things, things went along, as they do. My parents got divorced, as you can imagine. It's not really a match made in heaven. So, uh, I get to middle school. Uh, and in middle school, um, I remember I got, a, I, I got a girlfriend at that time, as much as that means for a middle schooler, right? And uh, she was mean. She was not nice. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to be that mean to her because in high school I met back up with. she's like, I was mean. I was really mean to you. And so she's cool. She's cool now, but back then she was, she was super mean and she's like, you're going to dance with me at this. This is the first dance I ever went to in my life and the, the, I was dodging her all the time. I was ducking into the bathrooms. I was, I was ducking under the bleacher. I could not hide from this woman. Uh, I'm in sixth grade, first, first high school or middle school dance I've ever gone to. And the song comes on, and I'll never forget it, because the only time I felt more nervous than right now was this exact moment <laughs> that I'm about to tell you. So, Aerosmith's uh, Don't Want to Miss a Thing comes on. Because at that time, uh, the, the movie, um, what's it called? Armageddon, Armageddon, it was like the biggest thing. So this song comes on. Uh, this is my motion for Armageddon. All right. So this comes on and I don't know if you can ever understand the most terror you can ever have an entire life. So, okay, so she's here, I'm about this far away and I've got my hands about here and, and, and my shirt's entirely soaked. I'm as close to her hips as I possibly could be. And she like moves them down. And I go, and I, go I, can't, I can't do this. So, so I, I go, we don't last very long. We're not a match made in heaven either. Fast forward to uh, when I start getting involved in theater, right, so I'm a very self-conscious, nervous kid. Uh, my mom gets me involved in theater through the city of Boise, later through the school, through high school, it's all going great. The best part about theater is you don't have to be yourself. You can be anything else but yourself. And it was awesome. It's like I could, I could, I could just be this fantastic, glamorous creature who is whatever they're going to be. Uh, and then I get the person who invites me to taking dance classes. Um, she also was not nice. So she invites me to dance class. We're taking them. Like a lot of them are theater kids. You take a bunch of dance classes, you're just doing your thing. And I'm like, this is really cool. I love this. So uh, I I was a pretty slow learner as a kid. So I kind of get the the wild idea that I should teach dance lessons so no one should have to suffer the awkwardness that I have to suffer. That was a big mmm in the crowd. (laughs) So. Because I suck at learning music and dance and everything else, I'm going to save everyone else the the frustration. And what what happens is this glorious moment where I start to be kind of good, and then my dance partner at the time starts expecting me to be something else other than I am. They expect me to be everything else that's coming out on YouTube, they expect me to be everything else that's on the Internet, they expect me to, to to glorify this this image that everybody else is is miserable, let me give you a perspective of how miserable this was i I uh, was dancing with said dance partner, and I uh, was doing a move that was something like this where I take my leg and I swing it, and then my shoe slips, and then my kneecap dislocates <laughs> we 're on a roller coaster so it dislocates, and I'm on the ground. I'm probably 20 years old at the time, I'm in, I'm in college. And my dance partner goes, Joel, get up. <laughs> she like doesn't believe me, because she's a horrible person. <laughs> and I'm on there, I got tears in my eyes, I'm doing this whole thing. Never been an injury that i have been more proud of than making this dance partner go, oh my God! so I pop it back in I go to the hospital my mom's there, she's awesome Uh, and she's like Joel, stop hurting yourself because I did that all the time so uh, she's supportive Uh, my dance partner obviously her and I are not a match made in heaven either this doesn't happen this doesn't work and I go through multiple dance partners along the way this is really hard, I kind of flew solo I was... I was like a lone wolf. I got this, I can figure this out, but it's really hard to teach partner dancing when you're by yourself, right? <laughs> um, eventually I find this wonderful woman who I'm dating now, and we're, we're talking about getting married, we're talking about getting a house, we're talking about all these things, which is amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm 35, this is a big step. I don't know if anyone else is going through that, but that's, that's a big step for me. Hey, thank you. <laughs> and, Like, the reason I'm with this woman is because she was the first person, other than my mother, who I love, but she's the first person who said, you know what, be you, dance how you wanna dance, I like what you're doing, and I like how you dance with me. And that's, we're dance partners now, and yeah, you can clap, it's okay. (laughs) And she would be here tonight, But she is doing, uh, she's decided she wants to be a firefighter. And I am just as supportive as that, as she is about my dancing. And I appreciate you listening to my story. You're all amazing. Please go and dance, try something new. It was great, thank you.
0: I also want to recognize our interpreter this evening, Lavona Andrew. And I delayed this a little bit, uh, acknowledging some of our other peoples, uh, our season sponsor, the Shandro Group. And yes, thank you. And then where are my story subscribers tonight? Story subscribers, let's give them a hand. They're supporting us on a monthly basis. If you want to come to our show and raise your hand too, then just go to (laughs) storystorynight.org. And then we have a show sponsor tonight, um, but I'll take this moment just to mention that we have not gotten any more show sponsors for this season. So if you know a small business or a person who might be interested in being a show sponsor for the next show and for the April show, uh, please direct them our way. But tonight we're very happy to have back a show sponsor who has been with us many times, Apple Plumbing and Bath. And we're gonna go right into a message from them. Apple Plumbing and Bath is locally owned bathroom remodel and plumbing service company. We can complete a partial or full bathroom remodel as well as resolve any plumbing issues you may have. With your house, I think. All right, Who are there? do we have people here with us tonight that are here for the first time? Haven't been to Story Story Night before? Oh, wow, that's cool. Nice, okay. So let me just share with you a little bit about the structure of the show. We have three curated storytellers who I'm gonna invite up on stage in just a moment. And what we do that's quite odd in terms of the world of storytelling shows, evenings, is we intermix those curated stories with Story Slammers. And this is you. And you can become a story slammer simply by visiting our story booth right over here, writing your name on a little ticket, and you drop it in tonight. It really is a hat. Uh, There's been a mutiny at the story booth tonight. So they're using, uh, actually, Ben's hat is the receptacle this evening. And then you'll have five minutes to share a story inspired by the theme, Touch. Um, We do consider ourselves PG-13. We have kind of a family audience, so keep that in mind. And also keep in mind that it should be your story, not you telling someone else's story. And I will just add, because it's been a problem in the past, that the name that you put on the ticket should also be your name. (laughs) Yeah. So tonight we are focused on the theme of touch, and it's kind of fitting that I just read this message from Apple Plumbing and Bath because one of the touch stories that I thought of was a time that I was performing at an international festival in South Korea and uh, we started in Seoul, Korea, but then we went out to Chungcheong which I'm not entirely sure where that is, and we started at this campus that, you know, had the dorm rooms and a you know, communal bathroom down the hallway and everything. But one of, there were three of us in our show, and one of the women in the show was like, It's too loud here. I can't, I'm not going to be able to perform. I can't rest. There's just so much noise. Can, is there anywhere else we could stay? So we only stayed there one night, and they took, put us into a little minivan the next morning, and we brought our luggage, and we got in the van, and we started driving, and the buildings disappeared and we turned onto this windy, dirt road and started driving down this dirt road through all these trees. And at this point, the two of us that were kind of okay at the, at the college campus were like, Krista, what have you done to us? Where, <laughs> where are we going? We were in the middle of an orchard, and this uh, person who grew peaches, I think, uh, also had like three little units uh, there that people could stay at. In the middle of this <laughs> orchard, uh, so we got in there, and one of the things I discovered very quickly is there was no hot water, and the the South Koreans didn't understand why I would want hot water in July, because uh, it was very hot outside. But I just I, I just can't do it. I can't stand the feeling of cold water on my body. Uh, so. At one point, I said I tried doing some sponge baths and kind of, you know, was appropriate for public, (laughs) I guess. Uh, But I said, you know, I really, really would like to have some hot water, and they said, fine, we'll take you to a bath. And I was like, okay. So again, a trip in the minivan, and we end up at this public bath, and I'm the only guy in the show. It was me and two girls, and so we're separated and I go to my side, and they go to theirs. And it was very quiet, but um, coming from America, where we tend to be very private with our bodies, I was not used to being in a place where guys were just walking around naked all over the place, and we were all sharing tubs, basically, together. So I, <laughs> I, uh, it was pretty quiet. I got into this tub, and there was only one other older gentleman who was about, you know, 10 feet away, so it was pretty big. And I was happy, I finally got in my hot water, it felt great, and then he's looking at me. And I kind of looked at him and I looked away and then I look back and he's a little closer. And (laughs) he's looking at me and I kind of smiled and he smiled a little bit. And then he starts doing this hand gesture of like, come over here. (laughs) And I'm kind of like, I'm good. I mean, I'm all for international exchanges and everything, but I'm pretty happy in my little section of hot water right over here. And he just keeps gesturing, and now I'm getting a little creeped out and wondering, am I safe here? Like, is is this okay? And then he keeps, and finally, I'm like, well, I mean, I just gotta go on this adventure, I guess. So, so I, I kinda, Reached my hand out and he grabbed my hand, awkward, and then he pulls me through the water and moves me into a place where there are jets. <laughs> and it was very pleasant. <laughs> and so it went from being an uncomfortable touch to a very, a touch that I was grateful for. So we're gonna hear some different kinds of stories of, oh, oh, well. Wow. Thank you. Thank you to you and my friend in South Korea. So now we're gonna bring up our featured storytellers in reverse order. So first up, her touch spans the ocean. Please welcome Paulina Lewengate. Here she comes. I hope, I haven't even met her yet. There she is. And we'll keep going with our second Storyteller right in the middle. Their experience of touch is just beginning, Bonnie Violet. Uh, And first up to the microphone, uh, actually, she's been to every show this season, but this is her first time to the Story Story Night microphone, please welcome Laureen Quick.
2: Good evening, everyone. We are connected together by touch. We touch each other each morning when we awake and greet the day and each other. We are in constant physical contact throughout the day as we play and work together. This past September, I got a dog. I got a dog that's a rescue dog from a local rescue group here in the Boise area, and her name is Dixie Girl. In the few short months that Dixie has been in my life, she has literally and figuratively transformed and changed my life. Each morning we wake up and I caress her face and scratch behind her ears. She nuzzles me with kisses and love. And at the end of our morning wake-up ritual, she rolls over on her back expectantly, and I rub her belly to her heart's content. And then we rise from the bed and begin our day. During the day, we touch as we play and we work together. One of the biggest parts of that is we train. Originally when I got Dixie, I wanted her to be a hiking dog with me and so I've been working hard to get her to listen to my commands. But she's done or become more than just a hiking companion to me. She's become a part of my family. She's become a part of a team that I belong to. She's given me a sense of belonging. She's given me great love. One of the commands I'm teaching her is the touch command. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I hold out my hand like so, and I say the word touch, and her job is then to run to my hand and put her nose in the palm of my hand. I use that command as a way to call her back to me on the trail, but also, eventually, I want that to be the way she greets other humans that enter into her life, as opposed to the jumping all over you and knocking you down method that she currently uses. At the end of the night, after dinner, we sit on the couch together. She typically lays her head in my lap and we digest our food together. And then when we go to bed, she crawls in and lays against my legs and my feet, offering me both warmth and comfort. It is an amazing way to spend the day together with my new teammate, my new friend, my new love. She's also helped me appreciate what it feels like to connect to another being. Last July, before I got Dixie, my oldest daughter got married. We went out to Stanley for a week and celebrated the union of her and her husband. And we also celebrated The love and support of family that have uh, surrounded them and helped them grow and mature into the couple that they are it was an incredible week of celebration but it was also challenging challenging because i was a single woman and in fact i was the single mother of the bride It felt uncomfortable and sometimes painful for me because at weddings, of course, what are we celebrating? Couplehood. It was almost like I was in that movie. You you know the one, Groundhog's Day, where Bill Murray plays that character who keeps repeating over and over again Groundhog's Day. Well, for me, I got seven delightful days of repeating Single Awareness Day. (laughs) When I got home from the wedding, I did what any modern woman would do. I signed up for a dating app. (laughs) I put myself out there with a profile, I hit that live button, and I waited to see what was gonna happen. Sure enough, over the course of a few weeks, I was introduced to about 35, 45 different men who had expressed interest in meeting me, connecting with me. Out of that, I scanned it down, or scaled it down to about five five that I thought would be kind of a match for me, started engaging in chat online with them. And out of that, three of them didn't seem to want to meet at all. They just wanted to keep talking. (laughs) Two of them, however, did agree to meet with me. The first one canceled on me as I was driving down to meet him at the sandbar on a hot August afternoon for drinks on the Boise River. The next one, though, showed up we met for coffee and we had a delightful conversation and i think at the end of that we shook hands politely and and agreed to meet again this time for a hike we met progressively over the course of the next several weeks for different hikes throughout the treasure valley and at each hike we would meet up in the parking lot of the trailhead we had chosen and we would embrace and that felt good we hiked We walked, we sweated, and then we would arrive back at the parking lot and it was time to say that awkward goodbye. And whenever we did, he would reach over and kind of tap me gently on the shoulder, like so, and thank me for a wonderful hike. It felt a little weird, but okay. However, I've taken CPR classes. And I don't know if you know this, but when you're in a CPR class, they really stress that when you encounter someone that you think is unconscious, you're (laughs) supposed to tap them on the shoulder and ask them if they're okay. So I kept waiting for that question, but it never came. And eventually the relationship fizzled out. I I think we were hoping that a a spark would ignite, but nothing really ever did. But what was important about that relationship, about that date, or those dates, was that for the first time in 16 years, I actually had a date. I had actually gone out with someone. (laughs) 16 years earlier, in the month of March, my husband was driving his way to the grocery store, and he had a small, minor car accident. He got out to, I assume, survey the damage to the car, and fell and hit his head on the sidewalk. The paramedics at the site said, oh, we think you should go to the doctor, to go to the hospital and see the doctor, which he did. I met him at the hospital, and the doctor said, we'd like to keep you overnight for observation. That night, I got a phone call about 2 in the morning, saying that his brain had swollen and that they needed to operate in order to relieve the pressure. The next morning I went to the hospital and discovered that during the operation he had gone into a coma. They had put him on a respirator to help him breathe and he never woke up. He lasted about a week on life support and then finally he passed away. Suddenly I was a widow, a single woman alone, with two teenage daughters. My husband and I had a great marriage. We were married for about 17 years. I think there was true love for us. Sometimes it was great, sometimes not so great, but we were connected, we were a team. One of the things I missed the most about not being married to him is our rituals of touch. We would ritually, every day, hug each other and kiss each other goodbye as we went about getting things done and doing the things that we needed to do to live and function and raise our daughters. Each night we would lay in bed and I would throw my arm over his chest and he would wrap his arms around my arm and we would talk about the day and we would talk about the future together. And that was very comforting and brought me great peace. Shortly after he died, my daughters and I had gone to a school event, and there I was introduced to a new teacher who had joined the the school. And when he shook my hand, greeting me, he held onto my hand for an unusually long period of time. I surmised that he was single, astute and clever that I am. And at the end of the night when I got back in the car with my girls, they were like freaking out. What was that about? Why was he holding your hand like that? And I made the decision right then and there that they had enough to deal with with the death of their father. I wasn't going to add to it by seeking a partner this time in my life. My job, my focus was to raise them and get them through high school and get them onto college and graduated. And with that, with a lot of help from family and friends, my life got full and very busy. Only until recently have I really wanted that connection again. So today, I'm a single woman with a dog. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that not so long ago, when I was in my late 20s, I was also a single woman, <laughs> feeling much the way I feel today, wishing for a partner, wishing for connection. And I was in therapy because I was worried that I was never going to have that connection. I was never going to have that, that partnership, that love. And my therapist said to me one day, Lorene, why don't you get a dog? <laughs> and I did. In my late 20's I got a golden retriever named Libby and she, like Dixie Girl, changed and transformed my life within a few short months, year. I was suddenly standing at the coffee break station at work talking to my future husband Roger about my dog and about his and our first dates were hiking dates where we would each take our dogs out together. And so who knows? Perhaps Dixie will be a catalyst for me to meet my future partner, my future love. But what I do know is the touch, the love, that I feel for Dixie has opened me to have that experience again, but it's also okay. if it never happens." Thank you.
0: And I want to acknowledge our uh, Tag team interpreter there, that was Sierra McIver. Thank you, Sierra. It's McIver, right? Not MacGyver, it's McIver. Yeah, McIver. Uh, Lorreen, while you were telling your story, I think I figured something out. Um, if, you don't have to use this advice, but if you're looking for some action and someone taps you on the shoulder, just don't respond. Yeah, it might, it might work. <laughs> All right, we're going to get a slammer here. Ben, if you'll bring me your hat, <laughs> your very literal hat. Uh, again, this is five minutes on a story. If you slammed last month, it's too late now, but we ask that you not put your name in the hat um, to give other people a chance. And um, we'll see who we have up here and what their touch experience is. Can I touch you? I guess we're off to the baths. <laughs> All right. Coming up here, I believe I recognize this name as a story subscriber. It's Robin Dahl. Robin. <laughs> That's right. Take, just take your time. <laughs> Make sure you groove while you go down the aisle. There we go. Nice. Hi, Robin. Is this your first time sharing?
3: First time not only sharing a story, but that's scary.
0: Yeah, well, if you just look into that. Thank you. Just look into that bright light and you won't see anybody.
3: All right, five minutes. Okay. I'll try. Hello, um, and you guys are really good. Thank you. Uh, okay, so I'm gonna tell, when, it, when we talk about touch, I think of physical touch. And ironically, I'm a non-hugger. I hate hugs, I hate physical touch. It's not, I, there's no childhood trauma involved. My parents were very loving and I just don't, it's never been comfortable for me. So most of my friends know this about me. Most of them respect it. I have a few who just can't control themselves and I have to just, (laughs) when they hug me, I go, it's only Cheryl, it's only Cheryl, it's only Cheryl, the whole time. (laughs) But um, anyway, that's who I am. So my way of expressing touch is more maybe spiritual, I guess. So I'm gonna tell a story about my friends. I, I am a nurse of 30 years, and imagine all the uncomfortable touching I've had to do in 30 years of that career. Um, and so in, in nursing, you establish a tribe of other nurses who are friends. And if, you, if any of you have nurses who are in your families or friends or in your life, you'll know we're not always the most nurturing people if you have like the man flu. But (laughs) (laughs) if, for instance, you need an ally or um, an advocate, we are all over it. And we are your um, supporters and we will die for you. We're very loyal people. So I have two friends, my, my good friends, Heather and Holly, who are also nurses. Most of my tribe is nurses. Um, Heather and Holly and I have a group text that we text every single day, ridiculously every day, all day. And it, sometimes it's like emotional traumas that we're going through, you know, family stuff. Sometimes it's just like, hey, did you hear this new medical thing? There's all different reasons, but we text all day, every day. Sometimes it's gossip even. But um, when Holly's mom got diagnosed with cancer, Heather, Holly, and I had this group text. We were discussing, uh, we kind of went through that journey with Holly, her mom, her dad. uh, And her mom ended up, unfortunately, passing in in January of 21. So. that next Thanksgiving, around sometime in, in November, Holly texts us a picture in our group text of a, a painting her mom had done. And uh, the painting, she said, this is the only painting my mom ever finished, as, as far as she knew. Um, and her mom was kind of like a free spirit. <laughs> and. Uh, the painting it, it represented one of these projects that she started and mostly never finished but this one she actually finished. Well at the time her mom and dad had been living in an RV park in Hagerman Idaho and so her mom was proud of this painting asked the management can I put hang this painting in the laundry room. <laughs> so Holly texted me this picture because it came up in her dad's like memory photos or whatever and you know uh, that day and so she texts us this it says this painting is the only painting my mom ever finished and it's hanging in the rv park at the laundry (laughs) laundry room in Hagerman Idaho and we're like oh it's beautiful and it actually was a beautiful painting um but Heather and I are texting on the side, without Holly's knowledge, saying, uh, "Wait a minute! This belongs on Holly's wall, not on the Hagerman RV park wall." So we made plans to go to Hagerman, Idaho, that next weekend, and appropriate the <laughs> painting and return it to its rightful owner. So, so I met with Heather. I, I, we did take into consideration that when we removed the painting from the wall there would be this empty spot. Well I have this cat named Ollaby who is anxiety ridden and uh, it, it has caused me a lot of sleep de- deprivation and um, I love him but not. So much. And so I did this paint your pet night, and my husband was like, you can't paint the dog again. You have to paint the cat. So I paint Olive. and it was hideous. It was so bad. So I said, and my husband wouldn't let me throw it out, but then he also didn't hang it up. So it was sort of in a corner behind a desk on, you know, in the office. So I was like, we'll just take the Olibi painting. So, took the Ellaby painting, met up with Heather. We're driving to Hagerman, and on the way, we did, Oh, Hager. <laughs> Heather also. We, I don't know if you've ever heard of Flat Stanley, but he's like this thing from a kid's book that, you know, you, you have these. You have a picture of Flat Stanley, and he goes on all the adventures with you. Well, Heather took one of the pictures of Deb, Holly's mom, and had it enlarged to life-size and then cut it out and put it on a stick and it was flat deb so flat deb (laughs) went on our adventure so we're we're driving to Hagerman with flat deb in the middle and and we decided we needed flat deb was wearing a visor so we decided we needed visor so we stopped at the walmart in mountain home and uh they didn't have visors so we bought these camo like these two dollar camo uh hats they were just like baseball caps and and another dollar pair of scissors and cut off the top and made them into visors so we both had visors so we went to Hagerman drove by the little thing that said uh, everybody who visits here has to stop at management and check in. Drove by the security cameras, went into the laundry room, all the security cameras. Here's Heather, the rodeo queen. Goes in, <laughs> she's beautiful. She goes in and she's got flat Deb in one hand and Oliby in the other hand. Goes into the laundry room there's the picture we couldn't even believe it she takes the picture off the wall puts all on the wall we leave kind of wave to the cameras go out into the car drive home deliver the picture to to holly a couple days later holly loves it we showed her i was videotaping the whole thing mind you uh holly loved it i texted her the videotape she said i'm gonna hang it on the wall My my Dad's coming for Thanksgiving. So her dad uh, cup, Thanksgiving was a couple days later. So her dad uh, she says I don't know I don't know how he's going to feel about it. He's not he's like really straight-laced. He used to be a cop, he used to be a pastor. He's very rule follower. So Holly <laughs> Holly's not sure how he's going to feel about the fact that we uh, effectively stole a painting. It was an art heist. So about a week later, I'm coming. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. About a week later. Uh-huh. Like, Don't do it, no! Okay, okay. A week later. A week later. About a no. week later, I, Heather gets a call at work. Texts me the the voice text. It is a <laughs> a deputy from Gooding County Sheriff's <laughs> Department. So the security cameras apparently worked. So. She's working. I said I'll call him. I call him. I give him the whole long, and he's kind of stern on the phone. I I give him the story about the you know the dead mom and the you know, the only painting she ever finished, <laughs> and I go through the whole thing. I explain. I said oh, we can replace it. We can we can return it. Whatever to make it right. And he goes, well, let me tell you something, Robin my name is Dave, and I'm Holly's father. (laughs) And in the end, I realized, first of all, Mr. Rule Follower was absolutely willing to break a few rules and impersonate an officer. And secondly, in the end, that was my version of a hug to my friend Holly because I feel like that painting touches more people on her wall than it ever could have touched on the RV laundry room wall. And
0: I forgot to warn Robin that when you reach your time, I come in for a hug. (laughs) Oh, that painting sounds beautiful. (laughs) And I like cats. All right, we're going to move to our next featured storyteller. And actually, it's quite interesting because um, uh, she was in another state when we started this process. And in the point from being selected to share a story and then be here tonight, she's moved here. <laughs> so we went through a whole journey together. Please welcome for her first time at the microphone here at Story Story night Bonnie Violet.
4: Hello. say hello back. Hello. See how easy that was? Okay, I feel good. All right so um, I don't really have a lot of experience with touch prior to recently I, I wouldn't have said that you know I would say that I have experienced a lot of touch a lot of really deep intense hard bad not so pleasant touch painful touch um, touch you know that was just like I said intense it was intense. Did I say that? <laughs> um, and uh, and um, I uh, I've come to you know um, you know how like every year we make uh, New Year's resolutions, and um, for the last decade, I've listed affection. Um, if that kind of gives you a sense, my my experience with touch is a lot more deeper than say like a soft affectionate touch. Uh, when I was five years old, I um, I witnessed probably one of the most um, intense uh, physical touches—a um, uh, child uh, of a child. Um, my, I was with a, a kid, and uh, I wanted the toy that he was playing with, and um, and 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 uh, I'm like trying to, th- and basically he um, he ended up getting hurt. Um, by an adult, because we were fighting. And um, I, like touch ceased to exist in that moment. I, I lost, I don't remember that, I don't have memories of it, I don't remember that it happened, and I don't remember anything that happened prior to that. So in a lot of ways, my experience with touch, my experience with in my body drastically changed. Um, as I was growing up, um, I again I, I don't I don't remember anything until I was until I was about the age of twelve. Um, the things that I do remember are those more intense, kind of spiritual, psychic, mental, um, not usually physical touch. Um, my father uh, was always attacking. My femininity. Um, At the time, I could see that he, you know, he was, you know, I just wasn't manly enough, you know, and um, he was doing everything he could to correct me. And I felt attacked. At the time, I, I had no clue why. I just didn't feel like I could do anything right, like I couldn't be correct. He would, yell at me for having my hands too close to my face or not speaking loud enough. Or he would ask, he would be like, why can't you just sit like a normal human being? He would say, do you want me to give you something to cry about? Oh yeah, crying. There was the crying. Um, After that experience though, I don't remember. I just, I had this like tendency to just like hysterically cry, like I couldn't, I couldn't control it, and I didn't understand it. I would just, um, whenever there was a potential for a conflict, I guess you know, it's it's at the time, like I said, I just had no clue what was happening. All I knew is that I was all of a sudden full of fear, and I would just cry. And as a person who was, you know, being raised as a boy crying was just not okay. And it would just make my dad even more upset, which would just make me more upset. And like, it would happen everywhere. You know, like I would cry at school. I would cry on the playground. I would cry in the classroom and I cried a lot at home. And because I didn't didn't remember this thing that had happened to me, I just, it was just really confused. And eventually it kind of turned into shame and, um, a really kind of deep pain that I just couldn't quite fix, you know. Um, I um, I had this crying problem or situation up until like my mid twenties, um, and I I didn't even my parents didn't even tell me until my mid twenties what had actually happened. Um, after that, ex- after that experience, I actually stopped speaking. Um, my parents. Didn't think I was ever going to speak again. I was mute for a good time of my childhood. They can't tell me when or how long or what. They just said it was a pretty good amount of time. Um, but again, I, I just don't. I don't remember this. And um, i yeah, I'm getting in my head a little bit. But just being human a little bit. But when I, um, I, uh, so so yeah so that was kind of my experience with touch and um a little later um you know like how sometimes you don't like you just don't know what you don't know and uh touch i I came to understand touch in a new way i remember it was about seven weeks um seven weeks in and uh, i had to go in and get some blood work done um and i went in to to get it done and um, I had I don't I still don't even know how I did it but somehow I like bumped my nipple with my elbow and it hurt really bad and I tried not to wince or like make it noticeable so the phlebotomist would know what had just happened and in my mind I was just thinking what the like what did you do girl like what is going on with like why does it hurt and then and then, it, and then I realized I realized that it was the medicine that the medicine had begun working. Um, You see, I had started hormones seven months, or seven weeks prior to that. And they had, and I, to be honest with you, when I started hormones, I, I didn't, I wasn't sure I wanted the physical changes, which might seem odd for what you might know about people like me, but it was, there was this, because of the, I think this experience that I had with a, as a child and, and growing up in the way that I did, I wasn't super connected with my body. I lived so much in my mind. The mind, and I, and I knew this and I was fairly aware of it, but again, I just didn't really realize the extent of what I was missing out on by not like being in my body. Um, when you take hormones, um, they do and and as i said like i didn't i actually almost didn't take the hormones because i didn't want the physical changes but there was just something deep inside of me that was just i just felt that i needed to have the medicine in my system it was like there was this like deficiency kind of like a vitamin deficiency like i was malnourished in some way like there was something inside of me that was wanting to live there was something that it was like a hunger or a thirst but but not really it was something different it was like a um like a weakness or an ailment something that was kind of without life within me and there was this thought that this medication might be a salve to the spot and like bring life to it I don't know it's really hard to explain but intuitively spiritually because I I think because I haven't been well with being in my body I've I've gotten really good about being spiritual and stuff and and like the mind stuff. And um so like I um and and so I started the medication. Um and then I started having these these physical um experiences. And and when I, I realized that about my my nipple too, at first I was petrified and I was in pain, but but then once I realized what was happening, I was just Full of so much glee, like the gleeest glee you could glee. I was <laughs> gleeing. and and you know, I had been trying to not let the phlebotomist know what was going on before, and I just could not contain my excitement. And for me, oftentimes, it's those intense feelings, those painful feelings that help me be in my body and help me really come to to know more of myself. Also, when you take hormones, it changes a lot. Your skin actually changes, um, and your ability to touch and the way things feel feel different. I remember the first time I noticed this; it was just, it was just like I, I just, I just touched my fingers together, and it felt different. There was this tangible texture and this experience of touching myself. Like, it was a touch that I had never felt before. And it was very, like, simple, but it was very, like, awe, like, I was in awe of it, let's say. Um, and uh, so it's been, it's been quite the journey with, um, with the body changing. And, you know, I, I'm really starting to, to understand that, um, you know, like, like I'm just starting to experience touch, you know, and I'm starting to actually be in my body. You know, it's 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 kind of nice <laughs> to be um, become more integrated, to have an experience in which you can kind of bring all of yourself into, and it's been such a, like a gift um, to be in my body and to feel, but it's also been extremely painful because to be in my body, one, there's a lot of, old traumas and stuff that are still there. Right. Um, but also as I start to grow and change and express myself, um, in this way that I was told for 40 some years with threats and, you know, like I'm actually existing in ways I was told I could not, and I wasn't allowed. And so it's difficult. And though like I've never felt closer to God and I've never felt more spiritual, like I really believe that this is a spiritual awakening for me, um, it's hard to be here, like in the world. You know, I'm excited about these expressions and I'm excited about these changes, but I'm not excited about how you are going to respond to it. And maybe not you all, but like, the world as a whole. It's a very scary place for a person like me. And now that I'm actually in my body and I can feel that stuff, it's been really intense. Um, but I'm, but, I, and again, I'm just super thrilled to have the opportunity to be able to, to, to be finally at this point in my life, you know, really being able to embody myself. Um, thank you. <laughs> And, and this particular moment and that, like, for me to have an opportunity to talk about touch tonight is, it's just really powerful for me because this is a new experience for me, you know, and, and oftentimes it's really easy to get stuck in my trauma. It's really good to get stuck in my pain and to do everything I can to just not feel that way anymore, you know, and um, drugs and alcohol did their thing for a while and then they stopped working and thankfully I was able to, you know, get away from that and I was able to get to where I am today and where I am today is like, you know, prior to this, my body was like something I had no problem with sharing uh, with many and with any, uh, with and without consent. Um, I, I have this appreciation, I have this, I've always had this honor, this respect, I always knew my body was sacred, but I lacked the ability to do anything about it like i lacked the ability to to act as if i knew that to be true um and i'm super excited that like you know i'm two years being on hormones which is just one part of this physical embodiment and transition for me and there's just so much more that i'm excited and scared and petrified about because it's like a whole new frontier and a whole new world for me to begin to experience and you know it's 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 um i i've i really um am in my head a little bit i just want to be candid with you it all sounded really good when i wrote it down and um and uh it's, it's still something I'm really processing, it's something that I'm still really coming to understand and I really want to, I want it to like end on the spot of like how much joy and excitement that I have for like going on a date, you know? Or um, just just really experiencing touch with my family again, you know, maybe one day they'll let me hang out with them again, you know? like. Maybe, and that's whoo, that's kind of the complicated stuff, you know what I mean? It's like, it's the touch that you want to have and it's the touch that I'm excited about, but it's also the touch that I'm petrified. I spent 40-some years running from it, you know? Um, I'm so grateful to have this opportunity and um, to be able to begin to form and give words to and to speak out loud uh, what my experience is I've come to understand that things become more tangible um, and I can begin to hear my like hear my story differently and it changes it it just changes it um, and through that change you know it leaves me with excitement and the lack of words to say, but I haven't had a lot of experience with touch. But boy, I mean girl, (laughs) I'm ready.
0: that, Bonnie Violet. And I think um, you really summed up a big part of what storytelling can be, what we hope it will be, what we hope it is for everyone who shares. Uh, This is a very um, a phrase I use, a hey, nanny nanny thing to do. But I found myself doing it at one point during Bonnie Violet's story, and I thought, maybe we should all do that. And that's just that moment of just putting your fingers into your hands and feeling that. One of the things we realized in the story salon is that we don't think about touch that often. It's kind of almost, for some of us, it's a lot like breathing. And it puts it in a whole new perspective to put it into stories and to concentrate it on it like we are tonight. Here's a touching message. Uh, do you guys have any insurance music? I've been asking all the all the musicians to play something insurance related. There we go. The Shandro group. Whoa. They know they're well. There does definitely seems like there's danger here. The Chandra Group knows there is a difference between offering your employees insurance and benefits. From our first conversation to -to day-to-day benefits management, we use data-driven and culture-focused methods for designing your benefits portfolio. We know no other program in a business can impact employees' financial, emotional, and physical well-being more than employee benefits. And with that, we're going to take about a 10-minute break before we hear more stories. Um, if you want to refresh for any beverages, you'll need to do that out in the lobby. That is the bar that will be open during intermission. And we'll be back in about 10 minutes. Thank you. Thank you, Hot Club Le I'm going to bring our storytellers back up, Lorreen and Bonnie Violet, You will join us back on stage as we gather back together for some more stories on the theme touch. And this is one of uh, so our last show was hearing and it's the first time that we had interpreters for the deaf and hard of hearing um, for our show. And we loved it so much that we asked the board, hey, can we do this for the whole rest of our season, at least? And they were like, yes, let's make that commitment. And what I discovered last time is one of my favorite moments in the show is when the band did a featured song. And um, I can't remember. Lavona, did you interpret that one last month? or? Yes.) <laughs> and watching Lavona uh, interpret the lyrics with the music was such a beautiful experience, and you all get to experience that right now, because Hot Club Look Ba is going to start our second act with the featured song "Cheek to Cheek."
5: find the happiness I see when we're out together dancing cheek to cheek. Oh, heaven, I'm in heaven, and the cares that hung around me through the week seem to vanish like a gambler's lucky streak. And we're out together dancing cheek to cheek. Oh, I'd like to climb a mountain and reach that highest peak. But it doesn't thrill me half as much as dancing cheek to cheek. I love to go out fishing in the river or a creek. But I don't enjoy it half as much as dancing cheek to cheek. Oh, mama, dance with me. I want my arms about you. My charms about you will carry me. I seem to find the happiness I seek when we're out together dancing. We're out together dancing. We're out together dancing cheek to cheek. Oh, yeah.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Hot Club Le Bois. Um, I felt like I, fig- I figured out fishing, I think. Fishing, yeah. But will you show us cheek to cheek again? No? Cheek to cheek. so nice. And I think I might have caught you anticipating the singer in that last chorus. I thought I saw you go to cheek when he went back and uh, caught back around. So I'm... <laughs> I'm starting to catch on. And and I was like, oh, she went ahead. (laughs) All right, let's bring that slammer hat back up here. And let's start with a slammer before we get to our final featured storyteller for this evening. I saw a number of tickets in there. So we've got several people with a connection to touch, which is pretty exciting. Let's see who we got. All right. This person has a great last name for this theme. Please welcome Jonathan Payne. (laughs) Hi, Jonathan.
6: Wow. I used to never win drawings, and recently it's been coming up more and more, so I guess... (laughs) uh, it's actually happening. Okay, um... I want to start this, and I'm going to try to be quick, but... How many people here are cat people? Very good, very good. How many people don't like cats? Ah, ah. I'm going to make an effort to convert you. So, this would have been, oh, God, like six years ago? Five years ago? I was working, some of you might know it, uh, the animal shelter in McCall, Idaho, McPaws. and I worked cleaning the cat kennels. And so part of what I did was there was an intake room where cats were sort of quarantined until they could be ready to be moved in with the rest of the cats. And when cats were in there, I'd have to go and clean that. So one day I come in, do my sweep, check in, and there's, a, there's a little cat in the quarantine or the intake room. So. I know I gotta go in and clean that, and I go in and I get a closer look at this cat. He's a little brown and gray tabby. Um, and so he is curled up and in the bed, looking very mopey, and not really active at all. So I think to myself, okay. I'll open this up and start cleaning around him. And I'm like, okay, he's not moving at all. He seems pretty comfortable. So I'm gonna turn around and I go to grab some other paper towels or something. Turn back around, cat's gone. (laughs) Um, And there is a curtained off section of the intake room where they keep some extra food, litter, things like that and it goes into some, uh, there's some overhanging vents. And as I'm searching around to try to figure out where I've lost this cat that's just arrived at the shelter, I realize he is up there, um, trying to climb up onto the vent, and he slips, and he is hanging down by his T- his front two paws, uh, and I just see like the bottom half of this cat hanging there. And I'm like, what kind of cat slips? <laughs> so, the first time I touched my cat was not fun for him because I had to grab him and pull him down from this vent, hold him as he kind of twisted and turned and put him back in his kennel where he was supposed to stay. And he went quickly back to moping. Uh, Now, he did not do well in the shelter. Yeah, so he, he hit a nerve with me. I wasn't in the best place at the time. And I felt like this cat also wasn't in the best place at his time. He'd been brought in with a couple other cats from a house that had to surrender their cats. Um, And so I was like, maybe I can get him to feel better about being in the shelter. I tried bringing him into the playroom with one of the cats he'd been brought in with. That cat didn't like him. I tried bringing him in the playroom with one of the friendlier cats I knew in there. That cat didn't like him. He was having a bad time. So the next significant time I can think of uh, touching my cat was um, bringing him into the playroom and just letting him lay in my lap. And he was still very sad and not active, but he would lay in my lap and you know how cats make biscuits? He would do that on my leg with very long untrimmed claws. (laughs) And I think that speaks to something that I've experienced since then. And in this case, it was touch, but I think it applies to many things. Sometimes people are going to inadvertently cause you some pain or trouble as they're trying to express their own pain and trouble. And that's what he was doing. He was trying to comfort himself with my help and I just had to sit there and deal with the claws in my leg (laughs) because I was in a position where I cared about this cat and I, I wanted to help him out. And someone who noticed that was my mom. I was living with my parents at the time. And so one day after work, uh, I meet her in McCall and she's like, well, why don't we just go adopt this cat? And so we do, and and I was quite surprised by that. Um, And we bring him home, and after that, like probably the next most significant touch I've had with this cat is teaching him to give me high fives. And now he does that when I ask. And also when he wants things, he thinks he can just high five for whatever he wants. And so I think it's a, it's a good story of, um, he started out needing this touch and to some extent, I needed it too. And we now are the best of friends to this day. Um, and so I'm glad that I took the time to take some time out with him and get to know this cat because he's awesome. And comparatively, <laughs> well, <there's>
3: the <laughs>
0: Thank you. One of the first things that touches me in the morning is my cat's tongue on the outside of my eyelid. No, I actually thought it was kind of sweet until someone told me the eyes are the first thing they eat. (laughs) And with that, I would like to introduce you to our final featured storyteller this evening. Not one of my smoothest segues. But you know, it's all none of this is written out in advance. It just happens in the moment. So please, please welcome. We are so excited to have here for the first time, Polina Luangate.
7: So we have cats eating human eyeballs. And then I am followed by these amazing two human beings as they shared their stories and then also the amazing band here that played tonight. So this is my first time at Story Story Night. I had no idea what this was going to be about, and then I heard the two present and I thought, holy tater tots, I'm not prepared. Not prepared. I thought I was gonna be presenting in front of an audience of physicians and I was gonna lecture, but this is a different ball game here, so. Here I go, bear with me, you're probably thinking this is gonna be painful. So my platform on touch tonight is being in touch with who I am and my identity. So I brought with me, you're probably thinking that this is a kitchen towel, but it's not. This is a little sarong skirt, the little sarong skirt that I wore out of the refugee camps in 1981 and entered Boise, Idaho in October of 1981. In 1975, the communist regime invaded, took over Laos, Southeast Asia, which is my origin country. I was born in Southern Laos. One could call me a Southern Belle. Here in Boise, we're all Southern Bells. Mom was pregnant with me at the time, and on Sunday, she gave birth, she was holding on to her sarong skirt, clutching it to her waist, holding it tight as she pushed by herself in the middle of the night, because my father had already left. He had already escaped Laos, he was a captain in the Royal Military, and he actually was scheduled for an execution. So he left first with the hope that he would return and help my mother, my older brother, and I escape. But instead, he found another family, another woman, and decided to leave us behind. That night, Mom gave birth to me. I shot out, I think, what you guys would call the slippery sucker. We called it something else in Laos. So as I shot out, I hit one of the boards, and I started crying. My aunts and my grandmother came to inspect what creature had came out of my mom. And as they looked down and saw my beloved round face, they named me Round and Dizzy. So in my culture, we don't call each other by our first names, it's always a nickname. Some of you would refer to this as a middle name. But in the Lao culture, it's always something that uh, is a physical attribute of yours. So I was round and dizzy because that was my face. If you're short, you're short. You're shorty. (laughs) If you're kind of pudgy and round, you might be called pudgy boy or roundness. So as the communists took over, mom witnessed many, many public executions she realized that it was no longer safe for us to remain in our home country she had heard of people being taken away in the middle of the night people being put on a bus and taken away for re-education education camps and there have been countless of stories of of those in the buses that said that the bus would stop in the middle of the road and they would call it the break they would escort everybody out of the bus and you would line up with the jungles behind you and they would just spray you with the gun people who fell who weren't injured pretended to die and as they escaped their stories were known we lived by the river can you imagine the Boise river with bodies floating down not just bodies but families with ropes tied on their waist, father, mother, teenage children, little kids. You had bodies that floated down with missing eyeballs, with missing breasts, missing limbs. We don't know if it was because of torture. We don't know if it's because of fish that could eat you, big crocodiles or alligators. So, Mom realized we were no longer safe. She devised a plan for us to escape. And she was told by her boss to be quiet. To be very quiet, because she would get everybody killed just by inquiring. How does one leave? How does one flee one's own country? And one night, he slipped her a little note of where she should go and it happened can you imagine going home tonight and then never coming back it happened to my family we had dinner with our extended family everybody knew that that was the last night they would ever see us and so as we left their home we walked right into the jungles right into the woods and we met up with three escape guides three men three strangers capable of who knows what. They had knives, like the machete knives. Wait, is a machete a gun or a knife? I think it's a knife. They had guns, and so we left with them, a single mom, a little boy, and me, the cutest three-year-old you would have ever seen. (laughs) Mom was wearing her Lao skirt. Imagine this for an adult woman in her 20s. I was wearing pants. Mom called me her little boy. Can you imagine why she did that? Can you imagine why one would not want to look pretty during such a scenario, wartime? Mom cut her hair really, really short. Forget the makeup, forget the brushing of the teeth. And she referred to to me as her little son because she was afraid that along our uncertain journey that those three escape guides might take me, her three-year-old, and sell me off to slavery or whatever. During our journey, we slept in massacre sites. Most of Asia, Asians in general, are superstitious. So who would dare sleep next to dead bodies? We did that because we believed that the communist would not look for us there. We also climbed up big rose trees, tall rose trees. We climbed up there to sleep in the middle of the day, to hide from the communists, to not be detected. And then we climbed down and journeyed on foot for two and a half weeks, two and a half weeks up and down mountains. Mom said we must have climbed three mountains taller than Bogus Basin on foot. We finally got to the Mekong River. As you can see across the river, we saw freedom, Thailand. Now you all have seen in the news what happens when you cross over to another country illegally. Back then, during that time, men and women were separated parents and children were separated men beaten sometimes beaten to death women raped children as well sold human trafficked we were fortunate before we crossed the river mom was so afraid so afraid she didn't know what gods to pray to so she prayed to all the gods i can clearly remember at my young age Seeing mom put sand on her sarong, gathering it up, and then taking a handful of sand and putting it on top of our heads, my brother's and mine, and praying so that the god of the earth could watch over us as we took the treacherous journey across the river in a single file canoe. It was a fallen tree and they had dug out the insides and turned it into a canoe. And as we got in single file, we rowed and rowed and rowed. As you can imagine, the Mekong equivalent to like the Mississippi, it's, it's like the bloodline of Southeast Asia. It's pretty large. The escape guides stopped the boat. They stopped rowing. Mom recalls the dead bodies floating down the river since the communists invaded. She felt that was it. We were all going to die. And they looked at her and they said, your little son, me was a burden we had to carry him up the tree coughed a lot because i'm asthmatic what do you have for us mom remembered that my grandmother had sewn jewelry on the inside of our clothes we didn't have pockets so she flipped over my brother's pant leg and saw a gold ring and gave it to them and they continued rowing We finally got to the bank of the Mekong, of the Thailand side. And they said, You're safe now, stay here, someone will come for you in the morning. Clearly, it was a devised plan. So, as we slept, mom was telling me this story years later as we're in the United States, but she said that was the most peaceful rest she has had since our foot journey. When we woke up, we realized we were resting on fresh grave mounds. So in Southeast Asia, where it's tropical and hot, when you bury people in shallow graves, the gases push the ground up. She felt that perhaps it was the spirits watching over us to protect us. This man comes crawling over one of the mounds and says, you've broken the laws of my country and they're coming after you. They're gonna take you and you're never gonna see your children again. You have to come with me. He could have been a serial killer for all we knew, but we went because we were so scared. We drove for hours and finally ended up at his home where his wife had been waiting, cooking a meal for us. And he said, go rest in the bedroom. We'll leave tomorrow morning. 15 minutes later, he comes crashing into the bedroom. He goes, they're on to you. They know you're here. We got to go. We got to go. So he piled us in the back of his Toyota pickup, surrounded us with rice bags, and we drove for hours. We came to a stop. There was commotion. And all of a sudden, we're like, oh, ooh. We weren't doing aerobics. I can guarantee you that. They were poking knives and swords, bamboo sticks, in to see if anybody was hiding. They, the officials in Thailand, Mom is telling me this story, as I was a teenager, and she's laughing hysterically. Meanwhile, I'm just stone-faced, trying to hold it in, trying to hold in my tears. How can a woman who has gone through that be so strong? I remember Mom telling me this story, and she was wearing her Lao sarong skirt. Meanwhile, she's playing with it and telling me this story. Growing up in Boise, Idaho, I so much wanted to be an American. I so much wanted to disregard my Lao heritage, my Lao culture, and I refused to wear a Lao sarong. Refused it. I wanted to wear Gap, guest jeans, adorn my feet with penny loafers. I wanted to be the all-American girl. But I struggled through school with my identity. I struggled with who am I? Am I Lao? Am I American? And then, of course, am I Idahoan? I didn't realize that you could be all of those all at once until I grew older and wiser. When I left Boise when I was 17 on a trip to Seattle I was using all the vernaculars that I was familiar with here in Idaho referring to myself as an Oriental. When I got to Seattle, I referenced myself as an Oriental and got the, (gasps) we're not noodles. (laughs) We're not rugs. We might be expensive rugs, but we are Asians. I had no idea. I thought, wow, I've been enlightened. 17 years old. That year also, I went back to Laos with my mother for the first time since we escaped. It had been about 11 years. My entire family in Laos held a funeral for us. They had no idea we had survived. Mom did not want to send them any letters of our whereabouts because of my father's status as a, an officer. She believed that had the communist Known they would execute my entire family, my mother's side of the family in Laos. So we went back unannounced as we were flying from Thailand into Laos. Mom reaches over, grabs my hand, looks at me, and says, Will you forgive me? It's like, Forgive you for what, Mom? If we don't, if we're not able, to come back to the United States. She felt that as we arrived in Laos, they would have a list of the escapees, and we would be on that list. And they would tear our passports up, and we would never be seen again. Luckily, none of that happened. So I was 17, hot-headed, quite the drama queen, arrived in Laos, and had my luggage dumped by officers in the airport carrying rifles with that knife at the end. I don't know what they're called, but you you know what I'm talking about. And they searched my bag. That was a reality check for me. I was so scared. And they were grateful at the same time and handed me a green orange and said thank you for your cooperation. As I navigated through my, my birth country, every woman was wearing a sarong skirt. They took pride in wearing the sarong skirt. They were strong, they were resilient. These were women who, for whatever reason, were not able to leave, did not want to leave. They stayed behind. With that much courage and walking around Laos wearing the sarong, and my mother was adorning in our Lao traditional dress while I was in my guest jeans, gap jeans, Levi's, I was the all-American girl. I realized that I so much wanted to be Lao. And as I kept remarking to my family members and the community people that I met in Laos that I'm Lao, they said, uh-uh. Mm? you're American. I thought that's so unusual because in America I'm seen as uh, somebody else, right? Identity shock, culture shock. So I thought I'm gonna show them because you know I'm the hot-headed teenager and I went and put on a sarong in Laos. I didn't realize that there was an art and a skill that you needed to put on a sarong. Luckily I had shorts on underneath as you can see where this was going. I had no idea of the amount of creepy crawlers and creatures all over. The lizards, the little gecko lizards, they're everywhere. Well, the kids knew that I was scared of the lizards. So one little sneaky kid grabbed it from a banana plant, looked at me and went, Rah! Rah! And I just went, Rah! and screamed and ran, and I did cartwheels like you couldn't believe it because I was tripping over the sarong that started to unravel and come off of me. I don't think the Lao people saw, ever saw a woman with such long legs. So I realized that I need to get my act together. Am I Lao,
3: right?
7: How do I embrace my culture? How do I identify and define who I am in a modern Western world? And then there's Idaho again, right? I want you to know there's a distinction, the world and Idaho. I'm happy to tell you that I am a proud Idahoan. I love Idaho. It is because of Idahoans that I have the life that I have. When we arrived in Boise, Idaho in October of 1981, we arrived through five different churches. They had sponsored us. I went to five different churches with my family for five years, (laughs) eight to five p.m. every Sunday. (laughs) Please don't invite me to attend church with you please. I beg of you. Idaho love, I beg of you. It is like going to meetings nonstop. Finally, my mother made a decision to say, okay, we're only going to go to one church. I mean, I've been to all the churches, even the church down the road with the tambourine and the snake. So luckily it ended after five years so as i got older i started to identify as lao american not lao not american not idahoan but lao american and then i started to realize uh uh-uh i'm american lao right so when i put on Not this little skirt, because this couldn't even fit over my my thigh, I don't think. (laughs) Not anymore. But when I wear my modern Lao skirt, I feel very well connected. I'm in touch with my cultural heritage, with my family's legacy, my mother as a pioneering woman, her courage, her fortitude. In making that decision to leave when she did, As I got older and wiser and realized that I can maybe make a difference, who knows, I was invited back to the Idaho Lao community to serve as the advisor to my own community, the Idaho Lao community. Fast forward a couple of years and the work that I did with the Idaho Museum of International Diaspora, diaspora defined as the involuntary displacement of peoples from their origin homelands. And you're probably looking at me like, yes, you're a diaspora. But guess what? You are the offspring of diasporas from Europe, if that's where your ancestors came from. So I was invited to go meet with the permanent Lao ambassador to the United Nations back in november of 2021 i thought how am i gonna what am i gonna look like am i lao am i american lao american american lao or am i idahoan (laughs) i decided to be lao and idahoan so i got dressed up in my lao skirt with a suit and I went and met with His Excellency Ambassador Anupad Lunokyo. And we had such a wonderful conversation that he invited me to join him with his entourage for dinner at his residence, which was the niece's, President Abraham Lincoln's niece's house. That's where he stayed at. And I got back into my, my sarong skirt, and I went there and met them. And I felt so proud, so proud to be connected and grounded to my cultural roots, but also so proud and so whole being an Idahoan. So what my little skirt means to me, now that I'm an adult and I'm wearing an adult size sarong, is reminding me of where I came from, reminding me of my lived experiences as all of that and landing on being Idaho, Idahoan. Who I am today is based on uh, uh, many things, but mainly to be able to touch and feel. If you see the sparkliness of this, this is Lao silk from the silkworms in Laos. I have to say it like that from the silkworms in Laos, and then uh, 100% Lao cotton from the cotton plants in Laos. I have to do that too, right? So when I wear my Lao sarong skirt, uh, I'm reminded of the struggles, um, the courage, resiliency of my mother and I want to carry forward her legacy and do good for the community, communities that I serve. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. If you'd like to see the storytellers in addition to hearing them, this entire show is available on the Story Story Night YouTube channel. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, and our season sponsor, The Chandro Group. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe to Story Story Night on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcast. Have a story? Call the storyline at 208-917-1970 and leave a message, or click the Stories tab on our website. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.